clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about the 1946 Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. Caroline, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. Merry Christmas to you and Happy 2021. I'm super jazzed to get out of 2020, so I can't wait to do 52 weeks of 2021 with you talking about Christmas greats. All signs look to it being an improved year, but why not have the insurance policy of Christmas every week for the entire year. Something to look forward to. What better thing could you have in your life? Caroline, do you know why when I set this up and I said to you, we have to release this January 2nd, do you know why? Well, I have seen the schedule. (laughs) Oh, so you do know why. Spoilers. Caroline looked all the way to the bottom. I looked all the way to the bottom. And so, yeah, I know what day we end on, which is the most important thing. What day do we end on in 2021? What is our 52nd movie going to be? What? Well, not what. Don't tell them what movie it is yet, (laughs) but tell them what day the 52nd movie will fall on. It will fall on December 25th, 2021, friends. Yes, 52 weeks of Christmas. (laughs) Some of these movies we've seen, some of these movies we haven't seen. I've never seen It's a Wonderful Life. First time I was watching it was for this podcast. Talk to me about Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. Have you seen this movie before? I have seen bits and pieces of it from pop culture. Like, you know, when they do those like movie montages, always that little part where, you know, every time a bell rings, an angel gets a wings. I've seen that a bunch of times, but turns out I have never seen it from beginning to end. So I was thrilled to get to watch this one. Do you mean this clip? Yeah, well, way to go. Way to get your wings, Clarence. <laughs> oh, I should warn you, dear listeners, now there's going to be a lot of Jimmy Stewart impersonations. I don't know if I do it well, but it makes me laugh. I think it's super funny. Carol, Caroline Mary, t- <laughs> tell me about your viewing experience here with uh, It's a Wonderful Life. What, 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 what'd you think of this movie? <laughs> oh, my God. I don't really have like this big history with it. However, I would say that it is the type of movie that I am just accustomed to seeing when I'm clicking through the channels at Christmas time. So in that way, it's very familiar to me. It just turns out I never watched it from beginning to end. How about you, Mike? Have you? There's definitely things I'm familiar with because of it's so well permeating in the pop culture landscape. You know, the, uh, you hear about it all the time. It just wasn't one of the things that I grew up with. And I, I feel like a lot of Christmas movies that we cherish are movies that we kind of grew up with. 
not necessarily ones we came to later in life. And this was not a movie that my parents showed us. So I knew things like the angel gets his wings. I knew, you know, I wish I'd never been born. I, you know, I knew there was a, an angel named Clarence. But there's so much of this movie that I did not know the structure of it. The, the fact that most of the movie is done in flashback. How hot Donna Reed is. <laughs> and how long the movie is. Not that it feels that long. This is like an over two hour movie, which for 1946... Yeah. Seems kind of long. Deal. Yeah, 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 for sure. Let's get into this plot synopsis because they, this was an interesting structure and something that I feel like you didn't see that much back then in, in the 40s when this was made. I feel like you saw a lot of straightforward, once upon a time, here's the story. And this one was much more creative than that. You know, in some ways, it's a little bit like the classic Christmas Carol where there are ghosts that take Ebenezer Scrooge on, you know, a voyage to different time periods. But really... The fact that so much of the movie is Franklin and Joseph table setting George Bailey's life for Clarence. Clarence doesn't come into the movie until two thirds of the way through the movie. That's insane. Well, that it's set up for Clarence to be learning about George. And that's why we need to be seeing these scenes. What a fascinating reason to show us just these clips throughout George's life. Because, you know, you need something to tie those together. And if it's like, well, this is just all the highlights for Clarence to be able to learn about George. Really smart. One of my favorite movies from the late 80s, early 90s is uh, a movie called Defending Your Life. It stars Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep. The conceit of the movie is after you die, you go to he- you go to a heaven way station where basically your life is put on trial. Over the course of the trial, the quote-unquote prosecutor and quote-unquote your defense attorney, uh, they each play clips of your life, which demonstrate that you uh, demonstrate the worth of your life. Ultimately, these clips of your life end up standing in for your life as a whole, and then the the decision is made, do you go back to Earth for another run at it, or do you go on to whatever comes next? I always loved that, that film conceit. A, a large portion of that portion of that is really kind of pulled from this movie, right? All these clips of George Bailey's life at various ages as a way to explain to Clarence why there are people praying for him on Christmas Eve. We don't know why people are praying for George and trying to keep him in his in in their prayers, but you learn over the course of these clips that this guy has lived a life of kind of selflessness, never doing the thing he wanted to do, always doing the thing for the family or for his brother, just earning lots of good karma. I I love it. The thing that I felt was a good balance to the whole idea of him just being like this perfect guy is that he did it not completely willingly. He kind of had to sigh and and go with the obligation of it all, which is like he is a good person at the end of the day, and he wants to fulfill everyone's you know expectations of him, and he wants to be there for people. But he's not like satisfied with what he's doing. He's not happy. This wasn't his life's dream, which is important, I think, to distinguishing it from like a completely sappy, over the top. Oh, he's just a really nice guy. He's not. He's a guy who had hopes and dreams that put it to the side for others, and I think that's much more relatable to the average person. The way the movie is set up, a lot of the things he does, he does willingly, but there's a significant amount of things that he does and sacrifices he makes 
that are not of his own choosing. Maybe actually the majority of things, you know, the fact that he has to keep working at the building and loan versus going to college and learning how to build things. No, he ends up giving his college money to his brother who becomes a football star and then a war hero. The fact that he has to spend all of his honeymoon money when there's a run on the bank, he has to use his own cash to keep the bank open. This family business that's, you know, been around for, for decades at this point open. He jumps in after Clarence when Clarence throws himself into the river to keep George from George, who is broken at that point, who is literally about to put his foot over the ledge of the Iron Bridge and jump off of it, even at that low point, still goes and does a thing for someone else ahead of himself. Because it's done with a little bit of reluctance, it's done with you understand the sacrifice, I think makes him relatable. Uh, I think there are moments in all of our lives where we end up not doing the thing we want to do because family requires it, because friends require it, because strangers require it. He's got flaws, but ultimately does the right thing. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves. I, I think I think it helps everyone, especially if you're like us and had never seen this movie beforehand, to, to understand a little bit of how it came to be. This was not an original idea of Frank Capra's, right? This was not out of his brain. That's right. So the original story was written by Philip Van Doren Stern in 1938, and it was called The Greatest Gift. He was just selling it as a short story. It actually started off as a dream for Philip, and he was wanting to publish this, but no one wanted to touch it. So he actually put it out as a pamphlet and gave it out as a Christmas card. And so the movie itself was based on essentially a Christmas card, which historically, so far as I can find, it's the one and only movie that's based on a Christmas card, which I thought was super cute. Frank Capra and Archeo got involved later from Old Philip. Initially, it was uh, purchased up by, I believe it was Cary Grant, right? It, the story came to the attention of uh, Cary Grant, who was a big film star, kind of like Jimmy Stewart. But I believe they bought it for $10,000. It shuffled around in Hollywood like scripts do from time to time. Archeo eventually shelved it. Capra got involved. He wanted to make the movie because he loved the story. Having worked with Jimmy Stewart, Stewart twice, you can't take it with you. And then Mr. Smith goes to Washington in 1938 and 39. He didn't want Cary Grant involved. He actually rewrote the story with Jimmy Stewart in mind. Interestingly, Cary Grant would eventually actually go on to be in another Christmas staple called The Bishop's Wife, which came out in 1948. I think it was interesting that Jimmy Stewart was just coming back from war, which is, I think, something that people kind of forget about in terms of the context of when this movie was coming out. You know, he did suffer from PTSD, and a lot of the things that we saw happening on screen, really a lot of the anguish and things that we saw was coming from a very real place for him. Lionel Barrymore, who plays the villainous Henry Potter in this movie, actually had to convince Jimmy Stewart to take the role because he returns from the war in 1945. Capra pitched the movie to him, but not having acted for five years, Jimmy Stewart was feeling self-conscious, didn't know what it would be like for him to be in front of a, a camera again. Or was it important anymore, right? Like, was acting something he should be spending his time doing when people were giving their lives? True. And so it's actually Lionel Barrymore who pulls him aside and says, this is perfect for you. You need to do this. And actually, he's the one who convinces Jimmy Stewart to take this role, which is great because you think of Lionel Barrymore as this like real, real meanie, right? I mean, 
maybe the one of the worst villains, unlikable villains I've ever seen in a movie. But behind the camera, he's he's the reason we have Jimmy Stewart in this kind of iconic role, which I think is great. It's one of those separate the actors from the role kind of situations where you're like, yes, they had a very contentious relationship on screen, but like they were real people behind the screen. Yeah, there's actually a little bit of dispute about how much money Capra actually ended up paying for this. So the stated number is $10,000. Capra claimed that to get the rights to the story plus the scripts that had been the all the draft scripts that had been done, Capra actually claims it cost him $50,000. We think of this movie as a Christmas classic now, but it actually had kind of a rocky road to getting made. Even once Capra becomes involved in the writing of the movie, if you look at the, the title cards in the beginning of the movie, there are three people credited, Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, which is a married team. They were a married writing team, screenplay team, and Frank Capra. And then there's a an additional add-on with some scenes credited to Joe Swirling. Now, that sounds, all right, well, all right, four people touched the script. There's actually another five, six people who were involved on scripts for this movie at some point. Three versions of the script by Dalton Trumbo, Clifford Odets, and Mark Connolly before Capra even really got his hands on it. Michael Wilson and Dorothy Parker actually were brought in to polish the script once it was kind of going forward. I am a huge fan of Dorothy Parker. And for those of you guys who are fans of Gilmore Girls or Bunheads or Marvelous Miss Maisel, Amy Sherman Palladino's production company is Dorothy Parker Productions. And you can tell a lot of the writing that Dorothy Parker has with that wit and that sass that comes out of the women, which you hear a lot out of Mary Hatch and Violet and Annie, the maid. I mean, you hear like so many different parts to it that where I hear that little extra edge that I can completely hear coming out of Lorelai's mouth and and Mrs. Maisel. It's amazing to hear that come back around like that, be inspired. How many years are we talking now? We're talking 80 years, you know, 80 years and, and the the echo through time, the generations inspired. You have to think if you're someone like a Dorothy Parker, especially a woman at this time in Hollywood, could she ever possibly imagine the effect she would have on literally generations of women at sass, uh, funny wit and humor? The, I mean, she's just one of those women, like she said, brevity is the soul of lingerie. <laughs> Oh my God, that's fantastic. <laughs> She's such a sass. Like, I just love her so much. Just to juxtapose how beloved this movie is, and it's, it's this inspirational, gentle Christmas classic versus the behind the scenes, how the sausage gets made. Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, the married couple, they actually took Capra to arbitration under the, the screenwriting uh, guild at the time, the agreement in place. They actually took him essentially to court to get him removed from the screenplay credit. Every time you see written by by, anytime you see directed by, anytime you see produced by on any kind of TV or movie, all of those credits are closely, closely guarded. There are all sorts of rules that are in place to denote, do you get a screenwriter's credit? Do you not get a screenwriter's credit? Do you get a directed by credit? And even in 1946, that was governed. And so the arbitration board uh, eventually decided that Hackett, Goodrich and Capra should all share the main screenwriting credit. Capra eventually added on giving Joe Swirling an additional scenes helped by credit. 
apparently it ruined the friendship with uh, Joe Swirling and Frank Capra because Joe Swirling felt like he had done a lot more than he was being given credit for. And in an interview, Capra says he didn't speak to me for five years. And Hackett and Goodrich, if you read interviews and comments that they've written about Capra, nothing nice to say about the man. And eventually they just left the project because they found him so impossible to work with. He was apparently a really difficult boss. I do need to correct. It's Dorothy Parker drank here productions for Amy Sherman Palladino. So just correcting myself. I love that. I love that. It's extra funny, no? <laughs> it is actually. Yeah. It is. <laughs> Let's get into the casting because we talked about Jimmy Stewart and, and obviously a lot of people remember him, but I actually did not know that Donna Reed played Mary Hatch. How silly is that? I didn't either. I just assumed Donna Reed didn't appear on, on anyone's screens until the Donna Reed show, which I had heard of. I mean, it's like a Nick at Night staple from when we were growing up. This is actually Donna Reed's first starring role. She had actually been in 20 films, I think, something like that. But this was her actual first starring role. Well, Gilmore Girls educated me on Donna Reed more than anyone else because they have an entire episode called That Damn Donna Reed. It's all about how people only think of her from the Donna Reed show and how she was just sort of like this, you know, perfect housewife. But that's not true. She actually was a um, producer. And when asked, like, when about Donna Reed's show, Reed was like, I played a strong woman who could manage her family. And that was really offensive to a lot of people. She is a strong woman and she is sassy and funny and just, I don't know, just has like this level of cool that like you don't see amongst women, especially of that era. Caroline, this movie was so sassy. I had no idea how saucy and sassy this movie actually was. And Donna Reed, above it all. Good Lord, when she is walking with the robe and she's swinging her belt and, and they, you know, oh my Lord, after the pool scene. Yeah. I, oof. I mean, I can't believe that would be saucy to see now if someone did that on the television screen. I, I would I would put that on a sassy meter. But for, for, for 1946, for, for a Hollywood still governed by the Hayes Code? Get this, dude. She was like a popular pinup for like GIs during World War II. Oh, and she like it. personally answered letters from soldiers. So don't you know she practiced that sass? You know those letters came either with like a lipstick kiss on them or something like like with a spritz of her perfume. <laughs> but imagine being a GI like in the in the trenches in Europe and in, you, you come home to a letter from Donna Reed. That would be amazing. That sounds like a pretty good pick-me-up. Donna Reed, though, not the first person considered for the role of Mayor Mary, Mary Hatch. <laughs> uh, actually, Gene Arthur who had starred with Jimmy Stewart in You Can't Take It With You and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the first two Capra films that they had done together, was offered the role, but she actually was uh, in the middle of suffering a bout of exhaustion. She had actually oh, dropped my. out of Born Yesterday on Broadway from exhaustion. So other people considered Olivia de Havilland, Martha Scott, Anne Dvorak, and Ginger Rogers, which I found fascinating to think that Ginger Rogers as Mary Hatch would have been a very different kind of movie, I think. I think so, too. Ginger Rogers, do you know why she turned it down? Probably she couldn't get out of a contract. It's because she thought the role of Mary was too bland. was too oh. bland. Can you? I know. She well, there wasn't a lot of dancing, so. That's true. That's true. And she obviously didn't read through the script about where she got to wear a robe and nothing else and swing her belt around. Nor throwing, you know, rocks through windows in the old Granville house. Well, that's an interesting that's an interesting question maybe to to raise. Is Mary Hatch as sassy and saucy and kind of this this vibrant woman, uh, a real strong woman and equal to George Bailey on screen? Is that because of what was in the script or is that because of Donna Reed? Did Donna Reed actually 
bring Mary to life in that way. And and maybe Ginger couldn't have done that. I'm going to submit that if Ginger read it and said it was bland, then it's Donna who breathed life into the role. As I was saying it out loud, I, <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I think I have to side with you. Hey, you know how you're talking about Barrymore before? Like, he's such a sass. Like, he was totally acting as if, like, Donna Reed wasn't, like, a small town girl enough to really play this role and totally bet her, like, 50 bucks that she couldn't milk a cow on set. She walked over, totally milked the cow, and then was like, that was the easiest $50 I have ever made. <laughs> That's very funny. Yes. It's funny, though, because Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed both came from Bedford Falls like small towns. I think there's a real reason why both of them feel so real in this town in these roles. Donna Reed was from Denison, Iowa, and uh, Jimmy Stewart was from Indiana, Pennsylvania. You know, Jimmy Stewart's father ran a small hardware store. I think Bedford Falls probably felt very, very real to both of these people. I love, though, that she took some of Lionel Barrymore's uh, money. <laughs> Uh, Drew Barrymore is related to Lionel Barrymore, but not kind of directly. He's actually her great uncle. So Drew Barrymore's father was John Barrymore Jr. John Barrymore Jr.'s father was John Barrymore, brother to Lionel Barrymore. Drew and Barrymore, actually, if you go back in the family line, they're both surnames of... I believe Lionel and John Barrymore's, their parents, I believe the mother's maiden name was Drew and the father's uh, surname was Barrymore. So Drew Barrymore's name actually is derived from the family surnames when you go back several generations, which I thought was pretty cool. Crazy. There's only really two people that were really kind of considered for George Bailey. Cary Grant, and then Henry Fonda, who was Jimmy Stewart's like best friend. They were both in the war together. They both came home. They both had no jobs. Henry Fonda, though, eventually got cast in John Ford's My Darling Clementine, which shot at the exact same time as It's a Wonderful Life. So he couldn't do the role. Not only did Lionel Barrymore have to kind of convince Jimmy Stewart to do it, and Frank Capra wanted Jimmy Stewart. I mean, they had a relationship together. But Henry Fonda kind of had to take himself out of contention for the role. Imagine, imagine a Henry Fonda, Ginger Rogers, It's a Wonderful Life. There would be no, you know, Merry Christmas, you old building alone. <laughs> like, I, don't, I, I can't, I don't even do a Henry Fonda. I mean. No, few do, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Henry, Henry Fonda is the star of the first black and white movie I ever liked. Um, up until this point, I had never enjoyed any black and white movie. I had just, not that I had seen any, I had just assumed that they were for old people. Um, but then I saw 12 Angry Men starring Henry Fonda, and it, like, opened my eyes. I was like, oh, my God, like, this is fantastic. I, I didn't know black and white movies could be good. And, it, I mean, like, as a young person, it, like, kind of really revolutionized and expanded greatly this idea of black and white movies as something you could watch. My favorite of people who were in the role for uh, Henry Potter before Lionel Barrymore took the role, Vincent Price, which I think was kind of uh, kind of funny. That would have been like a very exaggerated character. For sure. <laughs> Thomas Mitchell, who eventually went on to be cast as Uncle Billy, was actually in consideration for Henry Potter originally. No, I could see that. You could see him playing that a little differently and being kind of the, the evil guy. For sure. And actually, behind the scenes, Robbie Anderson, who plays young George Bailey, the, the Gower years George Bailey, he eventually went on to give interviews that Lionel Barrymore was actually really nice to him behind the scenes. And Thomas Mitchell was a bit of a, a bit of a nasty man 
uh, mm. to, to the young actor, kind of, you know, more chiding him for not being professional and, and getting it exactly right, even though he was just a kid. But it's actually Lionel Barrymore who took Thomas Mitchell aside, reportedly, allegedly, and said, uh, you know, I think we could go a little bit easier on the kid. Robbie Anderson had good stories, as it turned out, coming out of here. When H.B. Warner, who was cast as Mr. Gower, H.B. Uh, Warner, who I didn't know, but looking him up, apparently had been a big star during the silent movie era. Frank Capra had them rehearse the scene over and over throughout the day. The scene where George comes in and, and Mr. Gower realizes he hasn't delivered the poisoned pills yet and begins to shake him and begins to smack him around. And George has this really teary, you know, I know you put the poison pills. I know your son died. I know your mind's not in the right place. A really emotional scene, especially for a young actor. I think he does a great job. Capra has them rehearsing the scene over and over and over again. And uh, It's a Wonderful Life is considered a Christmas movie, but it was shot in the middle of a heat wave in California. So imagine doing that emotional scene over and over and over again throughout the day, it being blazing hot outside. Finally, Capra's like, all right, they're ready. And bring them on set. H.B. Warner is so worked up. He's so wound up at this point, Caroline, when he smacks him and makes his ear bleed. Uh, George Bailey's ear famously bleeding, his bad ear, from when he saves uh, Harry in the, at the beginning of the movie. That was real. H.B. Warner hit him so hard, smacked him, according to Robbie Anderson anyway, uh, smacked him so hard, his ear actually began to bleed. And Capra was like, I knew it. I, it was like, that's exactly what I was looking for. Wound him up all day like like a dog without like a meal. That's insane. Yeah, insane, right? And H.B. Warner feeling so bad, like like hugged Robbie Anderson once the cameras were stopped, like, like, like took him into an embrace to like apologize because he felt so bad for it. But Capra just knew how to wind him up. There's a couple of examples of that throughout the movie where Capra worked on the actor's personalities to get the best on scene uh, footage. And this is maybe the most disturbing one. I've never seen someone's ear bleed like that. No, it was it was upsetting. I, I really appreciated the details of, of that scene and, and understanding where Gower was, because when they show us that telegram, any other point in history, I would not have been aware of the 1919 Spanish flu. And the fact that that is likely what killed Gower's son, Robert, it says, you know, we know it's the year 1919. He died of some sort of flu, um, it says in the telegram. And it was like, oh, my God, if it had been any other time and not this pandemic we're all going through, oh, Oh my goodness, I would have no idea the the implications of this, but my God, it's it's so much more clear, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I think he does a great job of conveying this just being distraught. He's clearly drunk. It's not just that to him, George hasn't delivered a prescription to customers. It's because the boy in question has, I think it was diphtheria. For Mr. Gower, in, especially in his disheveled state, the idea that uh, another child is maybe going to die because George is being too lazy and doing his job the way he sees it. You really understand where he's coming from, his like the pathos of where he's coming from here in the scene. He He's just a broken man who literally takes it out on young George Bailey. On that larger scale, is that like this is 1919, like this is when the Spanish flu is happening and this is what is going on in the world. And so it's, it's like, you know, we can appreciate it on a different level than anyone before. Uh, the COVID, you know, coronavirus, obviously, being compared to the Spanish influenza spread because it was so viral. 
yeah, I, I again, another example of a whole thing I didn't know was in the movie. Like, I didn't know there was this really crazy emotional undercurrent. Before we move on from young George Bailey, I have a question. What is the deal with young George Bailey walking in and saying, I wish I have a million dollars? What is it? It's a, an old-fashioned cigar lighter that apparently worked in a very haphazard, finicky way. So the idea was if you pulled it open and a flame lit, it was it was almost considered lucky. So, you know, you can make a wish. That's why he says hot dog like he's got his wish came true. That's funny. So so we see young George, right? 12-year-old George, he saves his brother. He loses his hearing in his left ear, which which keeps him out of the war later on. Saving Harry from that freezing water has ramifications throughout his life. That's, I think, why the angels start there in telling the story. It's also when we see him stand up to Mr. Gower, which takes a lot of fortitude encourage for a 12 year old to stand up to an adult but then fast forward and you have 1928 george who is getting ready to go off to college but then his father has a stroke you know and so he has to give up all of his plans and he has to stay and take care of the building and loan then you have 1929 you have recession george where he doesn't go on his honeymoon, right? He And he has to spend all of his money to keep the bank from going out when there's a run on the bank. He has to keep the building and loan open. So he uses the $2,000, well, $1,998 uh, of his honeymoon money to keep the bank open. Then you have 1935 uh, George, who turns down a very lucrative $20,000 a year job offer from Henry Potter, because Henry Potter decides to finally change tack. To, to try and get rid of the Baileys. Um, but he stands up to him and says no. Then we fast forward to modern day George, where he's just broken down at this point, where, he, I mean, once Billy loses the money, he realizes he's worth more dead than alive. I think George is already George at that point. But I'm curious, when when you look back at it, do one of those seem more formative about who he would become as a man than any other? Or is it really maybe in the totality? I think that 12-year-old George is like really when I see him forming his personality, like it's all still raw and there. And I think it's from that original source of like wanting to be a good person, wanting to look out for others, you know, having all these hopes and dreams that were semi-realized, um, like, but on a smaller scale than he ever wanted them. I mean, it's a little microcosm for what ends up happening to Big George in the end. I agree with that because also in there, and I didn't include it in my very brief synopsis of the time jumps, we also see George stand up for his father and the quality of his the, of, of the man that he thinks his father is against Henry Potter as a 12-year-old. I mean, not only does he stand up to Mr. Gower to keep Gower from killing a kid with poison pills, he stands up to Potter, who even as a 12-year-old, he realizes is a villain who's trying to take down his father, who he says is a bigger man than anyone in this town, especially you, Mr. Potter. Hey, yo, Mr. Potter. <laughs> All of the bones of who George will become is there. The thing that's not there is the sacrifice. That's the thing that becomes, I think, an important part of George's character. Oh, I don't know. I disagree with you. When the boys are running to go play and he he has to wave them off and go to work. Yeehaw, I think that mm -hmm, he's already he's already been marked as as the guy who's got to go pull the wagon. He's the he's the donkey. And so he's got to go to work when everyone else gets to go play. I disagree. I think he already has a very good sense of sacrifice and. And he already is trying to be bigger than the town, but watching out for even the smallest kid. 
Well, there you go. I, I stand corrected. Curious what you think of cute little Mary Hatch. One, so patiently waiting for George in inside Gower's pharmacy. Uh, even when he's going running around trying to find advice, right? He, I mean, he sees the sign, the tobacco sign, you know, uh, what does dad say? That inspires him to actually go go down to the building alone and try and get a hold of his father. That's when he realizes that he's in a meeting with Potter. But then she comes back in the pharmacy and Mary is still there. Violet has come and gone, uh, you know, but and then she whispers in his ear and she says is this your bad ear she says i'm gonna love you to the day i die it's so sweet it's so it is very sweet very adorable do you think that you really are the bare bones of yourself at 12 do you think if you look back at yourself at 12 before you start having to make life choices before you sort of kind of get tossed around but if you look at who you were at 12 your personality the things you liked the, you know the things you were willing to do or not do or whatever do you look back and feel like you're you're somewhat the same or are you radically different I think generally that age is when people are the purest form. And I, and I think for me, that's how I look at George. I think it's the purest form of who George is before life kind of kicks dirt on you and, and tries to beat you down, which I think the, an age comes after which you are who you are. And it feels like life just kind of constantly swings at you and tries to break that from you. I think if I was the purest form of myself, I would look very much like, or I would act very much like my 11, 12, 13 year old self. I 100% am like my sense of humor, my interest in helping other people, my ability to sort of want to problem solve for everyone and everything that was on high levels at age 12. So I feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm just that. I think everything that happened after that was just putting layers on top of me. But if you just stripped out everything, 12 would be the right person I really was or am, I suppose. Yeah, I wonder if that's the way it is for everyone, though. It's a good question, listeners. Are you guys like who you think you were at 12? You know, have you grown and changed like so much from then? Or, you know, if you really just kind of drilled down, could you find that 12 year old self still in there? It's interesting because when you look at this movie as a whole, when you when you read the things Capra said about this movie, this wasn't a Christmas movie to Frank, Frank Capra. This was a movie about a man with a sense of duty and a sense of honor and community and inspiration and hope. But I think the idea of George at 12 is this pure form of George that remains the core of who he is, I think is an important detail. I think it's an important thing to understand who George Bailey is. I think it's an important thing to take a deeper message. So because it tells a story of how best to go about getting good karma and how best to maybe to handle yourself in the world. And I think that version of George Bailey is evident at 12. And, I, and so I, I think it's a really conscious decision on Frank Capra's part to craft the story that way. I am completely won over by Jean Gale as Little Mary. I'm completely emotionally invested in Bobby Anderson as young George. So I just wanted to give them a shout out. Uh, so young uh, Bobby Anderson, who plays young George, died on June 6, 2008. Whoa, Jean Gale actually is 108 years old, dude. See what good karma does for you. Well, Jean Gale, if you somehow come upon this podcast, we just want you to know that we love you as little Mary. We think you were adorable. I want to. I, I, I would love for her to say, George Bailey, I'm going to love you till the day I die. I mean, we're going to have to go to Cameo and see if she does Cameos. Aww. 
It's a Wonderful Life, I don't think, would be It's a Wonderful Life without being set in the idyllic fictional town of Bedford Falls, New York. Depending on who you ask, it's based on real places in New York and in the surrounding environs. I think at a larger scale, I think it's kind of an every town, right? It's supposed to represent random small town USA where everyone knows everyone, the cop knows everyone, and you really get a sense of that. Part of that is the scope of the set that Capra had built to date this had been one of the largest, if not the largest, set ever built for a movie in Hollywood, especially at least for RKO. I I think the Intolerance set probably remained the largest one at that point, but it was four acres the entire set was built out. What do you think of Bedford Falls when you watch the movie? Do you feel like you're actually there in this real town, or do you feel like you're on a set, Carolyn? Oh, no, I think it's an adorable little town. It it reminds me of a lot of different places here in small town Texas. There's plenty of those. I was just there recently to a little town that has like the Emporium and has the little movie theater and that type of thing. So, no, it feels very lived in and very real. I appreciate how much it feels like a cozy, warm and in many ways worn out town. Worn out or or lived in? Worn out in that the people are tired and the people are scratching. You know, nobody is hugely successful. You know, Potter has managed to keep his thumb on a lot of them. And people are hardworking and and is not a hugely prosperous town, which is part of why George has to do as much as he has to do to keep everyone afloat. It was built at RKO's Encino Ranch. It took up a full four acres. It had 75 stores built out. It contained 20 fully grown oak trees that were transplanted onto the set uh, for the woodsy scenes. And it had a 300-yard-long Main Street, which is important because we see a lot of Main Street often. I mean, there are a lot of shots where, you I mean, at the end of the movie, you see George running up and down, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. But, you know, when Potter's coming down in his carriage, you get, like, the real sense of, of length of the town. Um, so it's interesting uh, how it almost like the Truman Show, you know, where like an entire world like was literally kind of built up. Uh, this is like real, real setting. A real little city was built up to take place here because most movies are shot on sound stages, you know, where our sets are are built. You know, uh, we don't need an entire house. We just need a room. Unfortunately, uh, RKO eventually has to raise to the ground its Encino Ranch uh, setting. So only two actual settings still remain today from when this movie was made. There's the Swim Gym, which was a real gym inside the Beverly Hills High School, which is still there. And then there's the Martini's House, of all places, uh, inside Bailey Park. I read that it was just north of Glendale, and, like, you can actually still go visit it. How fun is that? You could do a whole, like, It's Wonderful Life tour and head over to Martini's and then down to Beverly Hills and have them open the floor for you. Narratively, I love the idea that George, after he bails out the the building alone in that scene, right, with the honeymoon money, we jump years. Bailey Park has kind of replaced Potter's Field. Because of George, because of the building and loan, people like Martini don't have to live in the slums of of the Potter slums anymore, but can go live the American dream. From all my research, the Martini family most likely represents Frank Capra's family. Capra actually means goat in Italian. And so when they're hopping into that car and it gets in, it's like a little nod. I think that's super cute. And so, yeah, apparently he used a lot of his family traits and stuff when writing the Martini family. Uh, you have to love uh, a family that keeps a pet goat. 
Um, I think that's true. <laughs> would you do that? Would you like write your family into a movie? Would you do that yourself? I, I think I would, right? I, the first rule you always hear advice given to writers is write what you know. Capra wrote what he know when he was changing parts of Van Dornstern's story. The the job that Sam becomes a plastics man and that Harry becomes a glass blower, those were based out of Frank Capra's experiences. Because like George Bailey, you know, had odd jobs, had a degree in engineering, you know, also wanted to build things, but then also felt like a failure, kind of like George did uh, for years. But he dabbled in things in with his engineering degree. He was aware of jobs like glass blowing and plastics. So Capra was putting all sorts of his like real life and upbringing into this movie, which is interesting because this is not like his first movie. He's a well-established, well-respected director by this time. This is in some ways this kind of a failure for him. But, you know, like it, this was this was not like... A, a brand new screenwriter or brand new director learning how to do his craft. And so I think that's interesting is that he's still incorporating his real life, the real what he knows into telling this very personal story. I love how much there's like these little like moments like that, that not only just are, are real life for Capra, but also like ad lib moments that were happening in the movie. I think that that's like super fun and cool that they added those in. Like one of my favorites was, you know, that part where uncle Billy is like leaving the party and he's drunk and he goes, and it sounds like he knocks over a bunch of trash cans and he's like, I'm I'm okay. Yeah. You know that whole part, you know? So it turns out that actually like a stage hand knocked over a bunch of stuff, but the actor who played uncle Billy just was like ad libbing and just went like, I'm all right. I'm all right. And just like played it. And Jimmy Stewart just laughed and they just like let it go. And they actually like paid the stagehand like 10 bucks for like adding that in because it was like so funny and cool. I love stuff like that. Yeah, it's fantastic. And uh, Capra gave him the 10 bucks, said thanks for the sound improvement. It's super funny. So funny. And great on great on Mitchell to improv that way. And again, and for Jimmy Stewart not to go like, oh, shit, the guy totally knocked stuff over. Like he just went with it. Everyone went with it. Love it. I mean, there's a couple of improv moments here, or not improv necessarily, but just genuine reaction shots in this movie that Capra catches, maybe even first take moments. And that's what we see in the film. There's another one during the run on the bank scene. George is trying to convince everyone, just take, just take what you need now to get through, okay? And then people are like, $20. There's the one bad guy who is like, I want my full $242, $252, and that's all he's going to take. But everyone else is kind of buys into what George is selling, that the building and loan is not money in a safe. It's, you know, my your money's in Bob's house. Bob's money's in your house. Both of your money's in, in, in Sarah's house down the street. I love the way that he explained it like that, because I think there's a lot of people who can watch the show and really not understand what a building alone even is to be honest with you I, I think there's plenty of people who are like i don't exactly know what he does so when he explains it like that like it's like everyone's like lending to one another like that i think it's really helpful to the audience it's almost like a rising tide lifts all boats kind of philosophy no yeah i'd say for people who haven't listened to pod clubhouse before it's kind of our philosophy at pod clubhouse is that through collaboration and working together it, it doesn't have to be a competition where we step on each other it's by working together we all kind of get ahead and the martinis are a great example of that you know it's through the building and loan that he's able to get mr martini is able to get for his family a brand new house in a nice area so anyway so in the run on in the run on the bank scene uh, george is going around how much you need how much you need to get by just now just now and everyone's like twenty dollars eighteen dollars and then the one woman her she says 1750 and george looks at her he gives it like a double take and then he kisses her on the cheek now the line as it was written was seventeen dollars 
before they went to film the actual scene. They had rehearsed it. $17, that was what was in the script. That was what Jimmy Stewart was expecting. Before they went to film it, Capra pulls the actress aside and says, listen, when you go to say it, don't say the written line. Don't say 17 even. Give it an odd number feel because we want to see how he reacts. And that's what we're going to that's what we're going to try and do and see how that works out. So instead of saying the $17 written line, she says 1750. So when Jimmy Stewart kind of double takes at her and then laughs and then gives her a kiss on the cheek, that's all Jimmy Stewart's natural reaction to the improv line. He was so in the moment or is George Bailey. It's such an on-brand move for George Bailey to react that way, but that's all Jimmy Stewart. I love that story. It creates that true sense of honesty like that, as if that woman really did the calculations in her head, like, what is the absolute least I can take from you, George? That authenticity, that feeling of, like, she's just trying to be so uber sincere. You would reach out and kiss her, like, oh, you, you're trying so hard. You're really trying to work with me. Thank you for going with this, you know? Yeah, the, the 50 cents makes it seem like she did the exact math of, like, bill costs this much, Bread costs this much. Uh, little Bobby needs new shoes this much. Seventeen fifty, and and his reaction of like because it's exactly what he's trying to get across. Not how much you are have in the bank. I know, or what not you're... what you want or whatever, but what you actually need. Right, and that's such a thing that especially today, I don't think enough of us ever think about. You know, I think so many of us always think in terms of what we want versus when a friend is in need or someone is in need or the community is in need instead of don't take what you want, but take what you need. And that's, I mean, you see it in that scene because the one guy refuses to budge. He takes what he wants, not what he needs. And George just has to kind of deal with that. But in the law of averages, the people hear George. They hear George and they buy into it. And the 1750, especially it's the last one. It's the last dollar amount we see. They've fully bought in as a people. George is able to not only pacify them, not only talk them down, but it's not pacifying. He makes them see it's larger than any one of us. What the building alone represents, what my father and Billy have built, what Bedford Falls means to each other is larger than any one of us. This movie also has a lot of humor, Caroline. And again, not something I was prepared for. I wasn't prepared for all the times that I laughed. When George shows up over at Mary's house. Yeah, when she's like fussing around trying to get ready for him. And then when her mom comes downstairs and is like, what are you guys doing? And she's all like, he's violently making love to me. Love that so much. I, I literally went like, <laughs> like, I, like laugh, laughed at that. I thought it was excellent. Tell me a funny moment you loved. For me, the funny moment in the movie is when Alfalfa opens up the gym floor. They're doing the Charleston and the Charleston. I love, I love swing music. I love, I love, love, love swing music. I, and the Charleston is a great dance. I'm a big fan of the Charleston. I actually used to know how to do the Charleston. What do you mean you used to know how to do the Charleston? You don't know how to do the Charleston anymore? I, I mean, I haven't done it in in 25 Oh, years. that's terrible. You should absolutely do it tonight. It's New Year's Eve. You should absolutely turn on some music and get to get and do it. Buffalo gals, won't you come out tonight? Um, <laughs> anyway. Whatever you play, I don't care, but you should absolutely do it. That should be like your way to ring in 2021. Yeah, I took a, I took a whole swing class when the swing was big. Shut and then up. Yeah. You yeah. did? I, were you trolling or were you doing it because a lady made you? It behooved me to take lessons. It was the only formal dance classes I ever took in my entire so life. So were you trolling or were you with a lady already? Both. I was with a girl and we eventually broke up. I actually continued taking the classes, though, because I was really into it. And I never had like owned a zoot suit, but I was like the level <laughs> I was the level right below owning a zoot suit. That's hilarious. Love it. 
on the uh, spectrum of of how much the swing movement affected me in the mid to late 90s, I was one level below Zoot Suit wearing. Maybe some Patreon content is a, a video of Mike <laughs> doing a little Charleston action because I need to see this. This sounds too good to be true. Just, just doing the, the hands on your knees movement is, is a total vibe. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> when when uh, Mary and George are there, you know, they're doing the, the front to back kicks and stuff like next to each other. And the crowd's going wild because the floor's opening up. And George says to Mary, ah, Mary, we, we must be pretty good. Everyone, look at that. They're cheering for us, Mary. <laughs> and the way they played that out where like George and Mary would get closer to the to the to the break and then come back and then dance closer like they're going to fall in and come back. My kids were like, no, like they were so into it. It was And the hilarious. crowd rises and falls with them like yes. every time they it's like Whoa! so good it's so good it's so, so good. good but the the hit for me the thing that made me literally laugh out loud was when they fall into the water and and then everyone starts jumping in and there's like the big heavy guy who does the worst yes. dive why does he do that weird that weird movie dive where you just do that thing with your hands like prayer hands and then you just jump in? why did they do that exactly because when you compare it when you compare that dive to actually how george bailey jumps into the river later and actually is a good dive yeah it's just so funny he's like i'm gonna dive but then he just does a belly flop. They come up in the water when Mary and George resurface in the water. Donna Reed, and I'm not even going to say Barry Hatch, Donna Reed is laughing so hysterically because George is still swinging Mary around as if they were still on solid ground dancing. It made me laugh out loud. Like, her laughing was infectious. It was straight-up belly laughing. It had to be very real. It was beyond acting. But the idea of like him still swinging her arm up and down and moving her around in the pool just made me flat-out laugh so, so hard. So, so, so hard. as someone who, like, adores comedy, anyone who will commit to the bit with me is my best friend ever like it just just commit i don't care what we're doing i don't care how silly we're being i don't care what the premise is him coming out of the water and continuing to dance is such commitment to the bit i'm like i'm in love with you like that's all i need is just commit to this it's so good yeah it's really really good i mean there there are so many other scenes i think that were uh unexpectedly or oddly funny when violet shows up and and almost causes a traffic accident with men turning to watch her swish away and address hats off to the customer man because man just perfection on those dresses that violet wears hats off to gloria graham for being a total doll i mean whoa whoa mama uh yeah that dress looks real good on your vi where, where where'd you oh get that my dress God. And my that's what he though, says he's looking her up and down i know and then bert's all like i, I gotta go check on my wife <laughs> so funny so good everything that i seen. it's just so well choreographed it's 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 men being men and and violet knowing what she's doing do you know a scene that was choreographed but like didn't go off like like you thought when mary and george are standing outside the house and they're going to throw those rocks into the windows originally capra had like a sharpshooter ready to shoot out the windows because they assumed donna reed was not able to throw this rock through a window she got out on the first one mike because she totally played high school baseball look at that that did not go as planned I know there's other ones. What about that kissing scene, Mike? Tell me about that. So this is another of those improv scenes. Uh, A couple things to remember about Jimmy Stewart. He's coming home, hasn't worked in five years, right? We always talked about how Lionel Barrymore had to convince him to take this role. Part of this is he hasn't kissed anyone on scene, on screen in five years. Very nervous about the the first time that Mary and George kiss in that passionate phone call with Sam, hee haw, Wainwright, (laughs) where, where George kind of goes through all of his emotions I might start calling you Mike Hee-Haw. Hee-Haw, <laughs> hee-haw. <laughs> Sam Wainwright haunts my dreams. Oh, God. So he put off the scene 
for weeks because not only was he nervous about kissing her on screen, he hadn't done it in five years. He was already feeling self-conscious about his acting ability. But in later years, he gave, he was talking to, I believe it was one of his sons. I think it was the actor who played Tommy. One of the sons eventually would go on to play Donna Reed's son in the Donna Reed show. Jimmy Stewart and him later, years later, were having a conversation and Jimmy Stewart essentially says, Donna Reed was so wholesome as Mary. She was so good. She was the she was the embodiment of goodness. And it made me feel very awkward that I'm going to have this kind of aggressive, uh, yelly into a love, almost, not quite bodice ripper, but but kind of an aggressive, especially for a first kiss scene with her. So he puts it off. He puts it off. He puts it off. Finally, Capra's like, we have to do this scene. Jimmy asks Donna Reed, should we practice this? You know, so we have an idea what she's doing. She says... Let's just do it. Capra's like, exactly. Let's just do it. What we get is what we get. What you see on that screen, the conversation with Sam Wainwright, they actually, the actor, Frank Albertson, who plays Sam Wainwright, he all Sam Wainwright, was actually in his office set in another RKO building on the phone with Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed doing that whole scene. That was a first take scene where the phone drops. Presumably Sam Hee-Haw is still listening to them with his ladies around him. And George kind of loses it and then ends up making out with with Mary. That was all first take. Uh, no rehearsal. Well, actually, the opposite of how Capra wound up H.B. Warner to get ready to slap young George. Capra took the opposite. He knew these actors. He knew the trepidation and he knew it was bottled up kind of urges. Caroline, they actually had to cut that scene. They cut that scene off because it was too racy for the censors. Whoa, that's some passion, yo. Yeah, the, the worked up, the blood is flowing. Wow. We talked about Bedford Falls. What did you think of Pottersville? Does Pottersville seem so bad? I think in the 40s, it would seem like a friggin' nightmare. I think now it seems like, well, I mean, that just seems like a lot of downtowns. Like, it doesn't seem that crazy. But I think in the 1940s, I think, yeah, it looks like a nightmare. Really, a strip joint in the place of the movie theater? Yikes. It's not good, Mike. The alternate version of Back to the Future 2, where uh, Biff is like a crime lord who runs Pine Valley. That's kind of what like Pottersville is, right? And I love the scene of Vi being carried out by the bouncer and yelling about the sailor's a liar. I mean, that scene just made me laugh. The idea of, of George staring like, I, I know her. I know that's violent hair. That's violent hair. <laughs> but you know you're in a different reality, though, because they have a sign there that says Jitterbug Welcome. Now, the Jitterbug is a very scandalous dance for this time and was not actually very welcome in polite society. So the idea that in the Pottersville version of Bedford Falls, not only is the Jitterbug tolerated, it's welcome. That tells you everything you need to know about what a scandalous place this is. You know, this time was a very, very pure kind of time. We have the Hays Code still in effect. And I was actually really surprised because you and I had learned a lot about the Hays Code when we were covering Hollywood. I know one of the rules was that the criminals have to either repent or be punished, but they cannot be uh, in any way profiting from the bad things that they do. And in this movie, I was shocked because we have Potter who snagged that money away from Uncle Billy and keeps the the $8,000 and never is in any way punished for that. Never has to repent, never gives it back. The bad guy keeps the money. That is a huge first, and especially during Hays Code, wild that they allowed that to stay. And maybe they got around it because he doesn't technically steal it. Billy actually loses it. He just doesn't do the good human thing and give it back. 
but he profits from it. That's the thing. Bad guys can't profit from stuff. That's just part of it. Another scene, there's there's a couple more that really made me sit up and, and feel something was this scene of Potter just unleashing 30 years worth of venom upon George here, where George comes to, to uh, beg. He comes to beg to bail out the building and loan so that it doesn't go under, so that he doesn't go to jail, so that the his family's company isn't lost uh, to, to bankruptcy and, and scandal. This scene stood out for me because Potter doesn't not only repent or or try and, you know, change his ways. He actually doubles or triples down on his villainy in the scene. And that really kind of shocked me. Uh, again, this is a family Christmas movie about inspiration and hope. I mean, Potter was voted by uh, the AFI as the sixth worst villain uh, or the sixth best villain in all of cinema history. This scene, you see why. It's it's truly heinous the way he behaves here, especially with George being so, I don't want to say pathetic, but he's literally groveling and begging here and taking the fall for Uncle Billy, which is something that Potter acknowledges, but doesn't actually do anything. Like, that's the part in the movie where Potter is moved by George making a sacrifice, you know, taking the bullet instead of his uncle. Not Potter. Potter's just like, oh, now I'm going to really put the screws to you because you're the one taking the fall for it. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to write up a, a arrest warrant for you. Right. I mean, as adults, I can even say that it's one of the few movies that I feel like it really doesn't have any comeuppance for the bad guy. And, and that's amazing. I mean, our good guy ends up OK in the end, but the bad guy doesn't work, end up any worse. That's kind of a first for me. This is not like a new movie that's really turning the trope on its ear. This is an old movie that was doing something that really doesn't get re repeated too, too often. So in this AFI list of villains. The number one villain they have is Hannibal Lecter from The Silence of the Lambs. Norman Bates from Psycho, Darth Vader, The Wicked Witch of the West, Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and then Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. Okay, I don't know exactly what happens to Nurse Ratchet off the top of my brain, but the rest of them get comeuppance. They all have comeuppance or actually become good guys in the end. Or at least get punished, because I don't think Hannibal ever repents. But he but he does... He's kind of he's likable, though. He does good things. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, Darth Vader, I mean, they're crediting Darth Vader in Empire Strikes Back, where, yeah, he's a total bad guy. But the next movie, he becomes a good guy. You know, so Potter doubles never. triples down never, never ever comes around never never has a redemption arc in, in any way not even a little bit never never even a teensy move towards being a good guy a good guy that's really shocking to me this other the scene also really hit me is part of the final breaking of george bailey for me because it's where george realizes that he's actually worth more dead than alive we hear that phrase Maybe some people, you know, especially adults, sometimes things are not going great, even think that phrase or or ponder that idea. But to actually see that play out in the movie and Jimmy Stewart just being all emotion and all emoting, uh, I'm a grown man. And so I did not cry at any time outright in this movie. But there's a couple of parts where I definitely started to get choked up. I definitely had some sniffles when he pulls out his life insurance policy and he's holding in his hands like a life raft really started to get to me, really, really start to get to me. That's the interesting part of, of a good Christmas movie, I think, specifically, is when you have those layers of like things that kids can get out of it. And then you have those those moments that 
adults are like, oh my God, you just like touched my soul. Like you hit me where I didn't think anyone knew. Like I had this little soft spot and you got to me. I think that George really assessing his life and trying to figure out what he's worth, what is he even worth anything to anyone is God, every adult has had that moment. And the fact that sometimes you need someone to take you by the hand and literally drag you around and show you what a difference you made in the world. Sometimes it has to be that literal for you to snap out of it. And it's what it, it takes for George. You know, uh, Jimmy Stewart actually is crying when he's when he's uh, praying to the Lord in martinis. You know, I'm at the end of my rope. Uh, you know, please send help. Uh, and he ends up getting punched by Mr. Welch. That's Jimmy Stewart really crying and during that prayer because he was so moved just in the moment of saying the lines. Mike, I'm super glad you brought up how it made you feel because I feel like that is a huge part of Christmas movies in general, how it makes us all feel, including the critics. So I want to jump into how this movie was received, not only by critics, but also by the public in general. It's an interesting story because we have the benefit of 70 years, years of hindsight. This movie came out and actually initially Frank Capra's production company, Liberty films lost over $500,000 on this. That's how poorly it did at the box office combined with it was an expensive movie. When we talked about that earlier, this is a box office bomb. Now, fast forward 70 years, the movie's now made, I read estimates, the movie's made over $70 million in DVD sales and merchandise sales and, and other things related to it that, that spun off of the movie, uh, a far cry from a negative $500,000 loss. And not only did the public not go out to see this in January, of 1947 the critics were kind of negative on it it was kind of mixed reviews it wasn't like all bad but it, very few of the reviews were glowing uh, for example the new york times actually gave it one of the best reviews of the major outlets this is part of the new york times quote-unquote glowing response the weakness of the picture from this reviewer's point of view is the sentimentality of it the illusory concept of life mr capra's nice people are charming his small town is quite beguiled place and his pattern for solving problems is most optimistic and facile but somehow they all resemble theatrical attitudes rather than average realities that was from bosley crowther's uh, new york times review and he was positive on juby stewart and on donna reed and some of the other acting performances but the sentimentality of it uh, another common criticism i saw caroline was that the movie was was very simple it lacked complexity I, I think both of those are way off base for what this movie is trying to do. I think this movie is trying to be sentimental. I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I think that that is like one of the themes is is that that hopefulness, that that digging in there and like getting to you and that really, you know, make, make you kind of think about your life and think about what's going on, make you sentimental. Uh, 1946, Frank Capra, he said the movie's themes for him anyway, were about an individual's belief in himself and that he made it to combat a modern trend towards atheism. And that's why there is kind of a religious overtone to the film. Capra was trying to make a story here where people thought about your place in the world, your place vis-a-vis uh, -vis your family and your neighbors and your community. Sentimentality is wrapped up in that. The part where we're talking about, you know, whether it's a Christmas movie and that type of thing, you know, the idea of why George is having this problem, it really isn't about Christmas. It isn't about like he doesn't have enough for his children or something like that that is that could pull out your heartstrings. It really isn't that. I mean, it's about his business, which which isn't terribly sentimental when you think about it. I mean, it's about his books having a problem, you know? And so and that is what is making him so upset. Yes, I agree with you on the plot purpose, but I, I disagree. 
I think this movie is extremely sentimental, though. The, the whole idea that the community has to come together and turn out their pockets to repay him for a lifetime of kindness. This is not a movie driven by logic or reasoning. This is a movie driven by the heart and good deeds, you know, if he was driven by his brain, George should take the job with Mr. Potter and he should secure a better life for his family. But he doesn't because of his sentimental attachments, his emotional connections to Bedford Falls, to the business that his uh, father and uncle started. That's all heart driven. That's not brain driven. That's this movie is all heart. This movie is all inspiration. This movie is all uh, feeling. So I have two parts to this that I have some question marks about with you. And I, I want to talk to you about what you think about this, because there's a portion of the movie that is obviously talking about ending George's life. And one way you could do that is you could say, what would happen if George did end his life? What would the future look like? What would happen if he wasn't here? Instead, they kind of turn that twist. They go back in time and they're like, what if you had never been born? Which was an interesting way to address what is happening here at this crossroads because that isn't what's happening. He's not like, you know, if he jumps off of the bridge, he won't not have ever been born. He, you know, he, his life will end and things will go differently from this point forward. My kiddos were like, oh, they're trying to show what happens in the future, like if he loses his life. And I'm like, actually, no, guys, like they're going back. He said, what if I had never been born? So I think that was an interesting way to tell the story. What do you think about that, that they chose to handle it that way? We could have moved forward in time, but instead they kind of like twist it around and say, what would happen if George had never been born? And that's what gives us the opportunity to sort of understand George's backstory. I think it's part of what makes this a Christmas movie, for one thing, but I, I think it's one of the central themes of this movie is the value of the of a human life or what they call, you know, God's greatest gift in the movie. Obviously, a little nod to the short story it's based on, but if they tell the story just going forward from him committing suicide, well, it's sad and it's certainly a drama I don't think it has the underlying uplifting themes that kind of celebrates the importance of human life and how each of us affects others without even being aware of it. I like that very much. So that really lends to this other part that I saw a lot of people have a little bit of an issue with, which is what if George was just a pretty average guy? Because he was really quite the saint in the town. I mean, he was extremely generous. He affected so many people's lives, but really an average average person, any one of us would say, well, I don't lend money to all the people in my town. I don't have this huge effect on everybody. What if I just go to work and I just have my family and, and, and that's all I do. It's this idea of conditional worth. Like we have to go back and say, well, because George saved someone's life and that allowed Harry to then go save all these people's life, George's life has worth. And the reality is that everybody's life has worth, whether or not you were out there doing good deeds all along or whether or not you just truly took care of your own family and you just took care of people, you know, nearby, you weren't such a grandiose do-gooder as George truly was. And so I saw some people have some question marks about that. What do you think about the, you know, sort of the idea that like everyone has worth regardless of this? Is this just like Hollywood platform? Like it's got to be a little bit bigger because it's Hollywood? That that's what Capra said the theme was, the individual belief in himself. It actually ends up being larger than that. It's, it's showing George his belief in the value of his own life, the worth of his own life. By doing so, shows 
not just him in isolation, but him as part of the entire kind of living organism of Bedford Falls and the move away from atheism. The idea that there is a spiritual aspect to our lives, which is not a thing Hollywood loves to delve into. Hollywood isn't, or at least modern Hollywood, is not really big on God based stories or spiritual stories they like atheismist uh like stories right because it's cleaner it's intellectually more stimulating to think that there is a scientific reason for everything that happens well sometimes for most things yeah but i think movies like it's a wonderful life and the the idea of a clarence the idea of a franklin and joseph all goes towards that there is something else there is some intangible you know whether it's whether you call it the soul whether you call it your chakra whether you call it uh, santa claus whatever it is there there is an intangible that not only makes us each important but i think that binds each of us to the other george bailey had he never been born well the world would have been deprived of a george bailey that's sure that's an individual based thing but the community of bedford falls is infinitely worse off without that part of their web that it was meant to have so i, I agree with you on that part but mo but a lot of people in the world would say well my community doesn't actually know me i don't have that level of interaction with the entire community the way that george does so then does my life have less worth the conditional worth of it that he is affecting so many people and he is so important that that's why he shouldn't commit suicide but it's questionable because god says everyone has worth no matter what you do, you don't have to have done anything for anyone at any point in time, and you're still worthy in God's eyes. So that's the part where people criticize the movie and say, you know, why do we have to go back through? Why does he have to have saved people's lives in order for him to be worthy? Because most of us probably won't save a person's life in our own lifetime. So does that make us less worthy than George? It's just an interesting like standpoint that I hadn't really thought that much about. I think that's a very hard and pessimistic view of not only the movie, but I mean, I would say that the person who's putting that view forward has kind of a really pessimistic view on human life in general, because I, I'm hard pressed to come up with a scenario. And I'm a pretty inventive guy. I'm hard pressed to come up with a scenario where Every person that's in contact with another person, no matter what their age is, no matter where they're located, if they have contact with another human being, they have affected that person's life in some way. Maybe not in huge ways. You know, we're, these don't have to be monumental changes. They don't, these don't need to be monumental things. It's the butterfly effect. You know, the, the butterfly has no idea when it flaps its wings in in California that it causes, uh, you know, a tsunami in Japan. Uh, it, it's, it's an infinitesimal uh, movement, but it still affects other people. By logic, everyone affects everyone else that you come into. Now, if you're telling me someone grew up in complete isolation, never was, was birthed and then never saw another human being. Well, I don't know how to rationalize the value of that human worth as far as the discussion of every life has worth because it affects other lives. 
I, I think there's other ways to do that that go beyond this movie. But the story we're telling here, though, I think the story that Capra and, and the story of George Bailey were telling here, though, is that George's, George's existence, even the stuff we didn't see, we got to see the bright line, good karma moments. But George's existence for all of those years, his being there affected all of these people's lives. Everyone on the run of the bank, the building and loan. I'm sure not everyone... I'm sure the Martini kids maybe didn't know who George Bailey was or, or, the, or any of the children of the people who came into the bank that day. And, you know, George helped them out and, and saved the building alone and saved all these people's houses from being foreclosed on forever impacted by his being there. I totally get it. I think that the critics have a good point, though, that the idea that if you are a person sitting on a desert island, do you deserve to die because you don't affect anyone else? And I'm saying, no, God says you all have worth. So it's an interesting point and something that I, it's just something to think about in, in terms of this movie. And and is it OK to just be a person in the world? There's plenty of people who are like, you know, sitting at home by themselves right now, maybe listening to this podcast, thinking, well, I haven't affected anybody in a year. I, I don't talk to anybody. I don't do anything. Do I not matter anymore? And, and you know, I, I think it's it's important to say, like, no, everyone has inherent worth. And this was a and to me, a Hollywood level, we gotta show you something bigger than what a, an average person's life would be, because it's Hollywood, because that's because that's what we do. Everybody's a little bit more amplified. Um, but everyone's life has worth. You teach by profession. I, I've taught kids in music and other things. An effective way of always teaching lessons, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, is that you use exaggerated lesson plans to make the moral of the story so bright line, bold, italicized, underlined that it's hard to miss, right? Aesop's fables are larger than life stories. They're not subtle. They're hit you over the head stories so that you can't miss the lesson, right? We don't want the lesson of every life is important, you, every life has worth, kind of lost in a subtlety interpretation like it's a French art film, right? We want that to be an obvious takeaway. The only other thing I wanted to talk about the negative criticism here, just because this was such a wild take, in uh, 2008, Wendell Jameson uh, for the New York Times revisited the movie. And again, the New York Times, generally positive going forward. Uh, Wendell Jameson wrote uh, that far from being a sentimental tale, it's a Wonderful Life is, quote, a terrifying, asphyxiating story about growing up and relinquishing your dreams of seeing your father driven to the grave before his time of living among bitter, small minded people. It's a story of being trapped, of compromising, of watching others move ahead and away, of becoming so filled with rage that you verbally abuse your children, their teacher and your oppressively perfect wife. Wow. <laughs> wow. It's a that take. Person, I, I, it's a take. But I don't think that person watched the last 30 minutes of the movie. I think if you watch the entire movie, it's a little bit indefensible because we all have low moments. That, that's, that's the human condition. We all have low moments. The idea, though, is that, is, is that you hope you have a Clarence come into your life. You hope you get a guardian angel to come into your life and show you that, yeah, George, you've actually lived a pretty wonderful life. I love that line. That's one of my favorite lines in the entire movie when Clarence, yeah. when, after Clarence shows all the things that would have happened had he never been born, he says, you know, in fact, George, you actually had a pretty wonderful life. The critic's not wrong in what he's saying. Those are the facts of the story. George absolutely gave up his dreams, his individual wants and desires. He absolutely did yell at his children, did, you know, have an issue with Mary, you know, doing her thing and just feeling like, you know, ah, I can't get out of here. Every time I turn around, I can't get out of here. He did feel that way. But I think that that's what 
balances him as a character and makes him a more realistic character because there's plenty of us who have like the road not taken and if you if you just made him someone who is totally thrilled with everything he did in his life he's likely not to have encountered this low moment he probably would have felt like oh i can get out of this this is no problem but because he felt trapped and because he felt like he continuously was guided by other people's choices into where he was that's what enables him to have this moment of feeling like oh you know i I don't even know what good i did on this world i was just guided by everyone else and it was important then to, to pull back and say yeah you were and you made sacrifices and we acknowledge that you made sacrifices george you absolutely did but you have these great kids you have a wife that loves you you have all these townspeople whose lives are infinitely better because of you you are good and this was a wonderful life it wasn't the life you had planned but it doesn't make it any less important or good or wonderful for that matter yeah you're 100 correct and i think it's so curious that the movie begins with hearing all of these voiceover townspeople praying for George mm. uh, in their separate thoughts, and you don't understand why. Well, you understand why by the end of the movie, because they understand, they've watched a lifetime of sacrifice that he's made for the town and for his family and for his community and friends. Everything you just said makes me scratch my head when a critic can look at this movie and say, A, it's not it's not showing complex characters or, or a, a real realistic life. Because I think everyone, every every adult that works a job and or has a family can relate to some aspect of George Bailey's life in this movie and the feeling of being kicked and, and beaten down a little bit by life and everything it throws at you. <laughs> I, you know, I, that there are people out there who did follow their dreams and are pursuing the things they wanted to. And maybe you were like, yeah, well, I didn't get married and I pursued this, you know, life of, of adventure or whatever they did. And so maybe they would look at this and be like, yeah, no, that's sad. And I feel really bad for that person. And I would never want to be that person. So, I mean, there are people out there that do that. We know that to be true. I think in terms of complexity, Mary probably could have been explored a little more because, I mean, her undying love for George is really never explained. She just is completely gaga for him from the beginning. You know, thinking about those types of arguments, I can understand it. I'm willing to overlook some of this stuff because there's just not enough time. Like we talked about, this was over a two-hour movie. You know, that wasn't the the message. The message wasn't like, let's look into every single person's brain. I also disagree with the critics saying that it was like bitter townspeople. I did not get that. They had moments of fear where they made choices that might have come off anxious or scared or stuff like that, like the bank run. But I don't think those people were bitter or or horrible townspeople. You know, I think as a whole, they were probably a fairly average town in terms of like everyone has their own little niche and everybody's doing their thing. I I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. And using the example, I mean, obviously Potter is a bitter man and his henchmen presumably are not much better than him. But the rest of the town, the one example of the bank run, that's not just Bedford Falls. That, I mean, that's what caused the Great Depression. The Great Depression was was started by the stock market crash. But the stock market crash, not alone, it was the run on the banks across the country that really launched us into the Great Depression. It was the complete collapse because that's really what signified the collapse of the the economic system of this country. The stock market is what panicked people to go to the banks, but it was everyone withdrawing their money all at the same time that literally crashed the system overnight. Anyway, that, that's a different podcast. Um, <laughs> I am happy to say, though, that in, in historical hindsight, if you go to Rotten Tomatoes right now today, this keeps a 94% uh, critics rating and a 95% audience score rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The 
the blurb is that a holiday classic to define all holiday classics. It's a Wonderful Life is one of the handful of films worth an annual viewing. Now, Caroline, I have to ask yes. you, is that fair? Is this a holiday classic? Is this a good Christmas movie? Is it worth an annual viewing? I think it is worth an annual viewing, especially because I think there's so many people out there who feel they're not appreciated, that the work that they do goes unnoticed. And maybe they even don't notice it themselves. They look back and they say, I really didn't even accomplish anything. It takes someone else. And in, in the case of this, you have a film to actually remind you, hey, look back and actually think about the things that you have done. That's the perfect time of year to do it when you're kind of taking stock at the end of the year and thinking about, you know, what did I do? You're exhausted. You know, you feel like we're like running to the finish line, especially this year. And yeah, I think that this is the perfect way for you to look back and say, you know, there were moments that I was important and I did matter and I'm, I'm glad I'm here and, and I'm, I'm worthy of being here. So for that, absolutely. And Christmas is the perfect time to sort of feel that, that miracle of togetherness. I have had that happen in real life. It shakes you to the core when people come out of the woodwork and, and offer money or offer support or whatever. It's happened in my life and it can be inexplicable how many people suddenly come out that you thought didn't even really know who you were or realize, you know, what impact you've had on their life. And they've done that. And it, it absolutely feels like a miracle. When the bank examiner even hands over money into the to the kitty to pony up the eight that for the eight thousand dollars, and then you have hee haw Sam Wainwright come in with the twenty five thousand dollar credit line, it's overwhelming. The hair standing up on my arms the first time I saw this. I ended up watching this movie two and a half times to get ready for this, but the first time, like the hair in my arms was standing up. It was so overwhelming. All of those people coming out. I, I think the lessons of this movie, I think the themes of this movie make this a great movie to watch literally any time of the year. But for me, this is a great Christmas movie. I get why people love this movie, why why it gets regularly voted as a number one Christmas movie. I think we're going to be on a journey, you and I, for 52 weeks of talking about what makes a good Christmas movie. What's a common thread between all of the movies we're going to look at that defines it as a Christmas movie and whether or not it succeeds if it is a good Christmas movie. For me, I'm looking at this movie. I'm pulling out the themes of the hope, the inspiration that this movie brings forward, the joy at the end uh, the overwhelming coming together, even if it's a little bit of do sex machina, those are the things I'm looking at uh, that really make this a great Christmas movie. It's important to understand why so many people associate it with Christmas in terms of the historical information. This was a situation where there was just a clerical error in the 70s, and the movie was actually sent off to public domain in that everyone could just run it on TV on every station. So there's so many of us that know this movie as a Christmas movie just because of that. Everyone was running it for 20 years, and it wasn't until in the 90s that people actually got those rights back, and, and NBC only plays it twice a year now. But it's in our collective conscience as a Christmas movie now. I, it was just like kind of a <laughs> happenstance thing. To, it was given room to run. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. And once everybody saw it, they had a chance to really appreciate it. Yeah. And I think in the end, that made all the difference was because not only that norms change, you know, remember, this movie is released the year after the end of World War II. This movie was nominated, Caroline, for five Academy Awards. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Film Editing, Best Sound Recording. It lost all all five nominations uh, in those categories in the 1946 Academy Awards. Four of the f four of the categories it lost against was a movie called The Best Year of Our Lives, which ended up being 
It was released in late 1946, just like uh, It's a Wonderful Life. It ended up being the top-grossing movie of 1947, the best year of our lives. And you know what that movie was about? Servicemen coming home from World War II. This was a country that was trying to heal itself and was trying to dust off the the chaos and and death and 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 hardship and tears of of four years of war this country was not maybe in a place in a headspace to accept it's a wonderful life and it's and its themes in 1946 and to be super fair when you they are very cautious about the words that they use i feel like when we're talking about george on the bridge when he's saying you know i just i just don't know you know what i'm doing here kind of thing it's until Clarence actually uses the word suicide that oh. things get a lot more serious to me. And I, I mean, I had a pause because my kiddos are young and I didn't exactly know how they were going to hear that. I was a little uneasy. I can remember earlier in this year when they were saying, oh, let's put on a Christmas movie. And I was like, don't put on that one about the guy who's going to commit suicide. Don't do that one, you guys, not that one. Because it seems like too much. And I hadn't ever sat down and watched it. And after watching it, I'm like, okay, the concept is there. It's absolutely there. But the bigger message of how important you are and why we need you to stick around trumps it completely the the nervousness that i had about really kind of bringing that up so you know people might have stood up in the movie theater and walked out you know at that point because that's big talk in your face and they didn't do that then there's a lot of themes in this movie that would be taboo even today even in 2020 or 2021 now when this comes out it does 2021 i'm dreading writing my checks going forward for the next <laughs> i still write like 2019 on everything i don't write 2020 on anything i have never did so i'm a breeze right by <laughs> you know the, the idea of suicide being referred to as suicide is is still it's taboo huge it's it's a taboo word even the concept is taboo but actually saying the word dealing with the topic is taboo Uh, george bailey this last half hour hour of this movie this is an emotional roller coaster it It really is it it so has you in a hug though for so much of it though it's taking you really down low and then it takes you up really high and then it ends with all anxiety and you know you're probably feeling something I, i i don't know who doesn't feel anything watching the end of this movie you're probably feeling something, but the movie had you kind of in a hug the entire way. It never pushes you off of the proverbial bridge to float on your own, I think. And and, and there's so much magic. I think it is so magical and sweet that they actually won the Science and Tech Award for the snow. Because I have this, I know I don't live up north, but I have this complete affinity for snow in that like when it starts doing it's just this like magical wow everything's all white and sparkly and pretty and the fact that they would win for that feels like so like yes that feels right like it was like the icing on the top of the whole thing and like yes they should win for that uh in and not only that i mean the snow is the snow is is a character in this movie and when you understand that when when george is running through the town screaming merry christmas when george is at the bridge and he has to jump in and save clarence caroline it was a heat wave in california uh frank capra had to shut production down because of of the heat 
that it was it was overwhelming. Jimmy Stewart is visibly sweating in scenes of the movie there where there's all the snow, Caroline. It's amazing. When when he comes back and he he's praying to God and he says the word God, the the screen fills literally with snow falling from the sky. The technical award they won here is so well deserved because it had never been done before by using fomite, which is the compound that's in uh extinguisher uh, fire extinguishers. They combined it with soap sugar and water it created a chemical snow and because prior to this typically movie sets would just paint white cornflakes and use that for snow that was the go-to for snow in motion pictures up to this point when capra was filming this it didn't work because when there was so much snow being used in this movie it was making too much crunchy noises when people were walking so they had to come up with a silent snow essentially something that was more liquid something that looked more believable and something that didn't crunch when the actors were walking and talking on the film and there's a lot of running around on the snow in this movie it's a wonderful life literally changed how movies were made by introducing this new uh technique and making snow which is pretty amazing i think it's it's just one of those little things that's like you notice it in the movie so much and so i just love that they actually got acknowledged for it as a storytelling device when he's on the bridge and bert the cop is coming up to him right before then he there's a there's a moment where he's back he's back he's learned his lesson he has he has learned his worth and and the the need for him to be there uh, he had the old maid, you know, he had just, you know, <laughs> run away from Mary after shaking her to bits, you know, spinster Mary, which oof. and and the snow falling is such a great narrative device, because even if you don't realize it, you, you realize it on some level that things have changed now because of the way the snow begins to fall at that very specific moment. I love it so much. We can do a potpourri of fast facts between the two of us and pass back and forth. Lots of different trivia. Okay. Dalton Trumbo, who was one of the three people who touched the script before Capra really got his hands on it, he had George Bailey actually being an idealistic politician who becomes more and more cynical as the story goes on. He tries to commit suicide after losing an election. In that same version, the angel in the movie shows him not what life would have been like had he not been born, but if he had gone into business instead of going into politics. The crazy part of the story, the end of the film has George Bailey fighting an evil doppelganger version of him himself a battle that results in the death of evil george bailey on the bridge whoa imagine it's a wonderful life with an evil doppelganger george bailey and a corrupt corrupt george Bailey. ah you're all building a loan i'm gonna take it for every penny you're worth i'm a politician mr smith mr (laughs) evil mr smith has gone to washington wow that would have been insane all right you go hit me Okay, so you know Chuck Lorre, who totally created and did uh, Big Bang Theory and many, many other things. Well, Sheldon Leonard was the name of Nick. The actual actor was Nick on The Bartender, right? And he named his two characters, Sheldon and Leonard, after him. You go. The original draft of the script had the boys playing ice hockey, uh, young George and young Harry playing ice hockey, instead of sledding down the hill like we see in the finished movie. They're doing so on Henry Potter's uh, property. He becomes so enraged at these youngins having a good time in the snow, he releases attack dogs, Caroline, in this early script draft, which chase Harry across the ice, which causes him to fall into the water. George would go on to save him like he does in the actual movie. But yeah, we could have had we could have had attack dogs, Potter attack dogs in this movie. Well, another animal that we see in this movie in real life, not just in your 
attack dogs potential script is jimmy the raven love him after in 1938 he's in every frank capra movie and why he's always hanging around the building alone area there is because he is a symbol of like negativity and like bad energy so he actually climbs all over uncle billy like right after the loss of the money so i thought that was fascinating what a crazy symbol cool visual I'm going to add in another Jimmy the Raven fact because I was so into reading about him just like you were. Jimmy the Raven is the raven. Well, he's a crow in this movie. He's the crow that lands on the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. Crazy. Yeah, Jimmy the Raven had a great career. (laughs) Jimmy the Raven was all over the place. Did you know, Mike, that... Real working bird. Did you know that bells ring 42 times in the movie, which means every time someone watches it, 42 angels get their wings. Aww. Aww. Fast facts, go! In the original script, George Bailey, in the original ending, uh, George Bailey falls to his knees and recites the Lord's Prayer. The same script also had a a full-on formal townspeople praying scene in it not just overdubs of people kind of saying nighttime prayers for george it was taken out though because they felt that the overly religious tone it undermined the emotional impact of all the family and friends kind of rushing to george's uh rescue and and all the the impact of all the money being put on the table so yeah the lord's prayer came out axed If you guys happen across this on your TV guide over some Christmas, there's a TV reboot called It Happened One Christmas, and that is actually a remake of It's a Wonderful Life. My last fast fact. In the original script, Clarence, little sweet angel Clarence, he confronts Potter about what he did to George. It originally would have taken place right after Potter yells at uh, George Bailey, and Happy New Year to you in jail. Man, we could have had Clarence fist fighting uh, Henry (laughs) Potter. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, I'm super happy that we got a chance to examine It's a Wonderful Life because this was one I had never seen before. And I'm super glad that we had an opportunity to sit down and talk about this. I'm looking forward to 51 more weeks of Christmas with you. I am also really excited. I think it's going to be a great ride. I think it was really important to start with this one just because so many people consider it their favorite. Uh, I think it's also funny that neither you and I had seen it considering how much it's considered (laughs) a beloved classic. Hey, Mike, before we get into next week's movie, tell me, how many bells do you give this one? Well, you know what? We have a long way to go. Uh, And as much as I like this movie, I don't want to I don't want to use all my bells early. So I'm going to say I'm giving It's a Wonderful Life. I'm going to say I'm going to give it nine bells, nine jingle bells to begin with out of ten. That's pretty high, Mike. You didn't give yourself much room there. (laughs) Well, there's 9.1, 9.2. Oh, geez. We're doing that. We're doing like quarter bells. If it it gets to that, if it gets to that. So, okay. uh, Well, I mean, this is, this is pretty good movie. It is a good movie. I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it eight bells just to give myself a little bit of extra wiggle room. Um, and I'm looking forward to finding more movies to rate with you. Yeah, I mean, you know what? I'm going to change mine. I'm actually going to say eight and a half jingle bells. You can't do yeah. that. Well, because I because I know the movie next week that's coming up, and I know I like that, that movie more than I like this one. Oh, so I have okay. to give myself some wiggle room. Well, give me that clue for next week. All right. Speaking of next week's movie, here is your clue. Santa! Oh my God! Santa here? I know him. I know him. Buddy, I know him. That's Buddy the Elf. I can't wait to get to talk about him. Are we doing Elf next week? 
we are doing. We're doing the 2003 John Favreau, Will Ferrell starring movie Elf, starring Will Ferrell, Zoe Deschanel, James Caan, Ed Asner, Bob Newhart, Mary Steenburger. Uh, so much fun. I love Elf so, so, so much. And uh, I'm super, super excited to sh- talk about talk to you about it and share it with everyone else. I'm looking forward to 51 more weeks of Christmas, getting to discuss trivia and fun facts with all of you guys at home and with you, Mike. Thanks so much for listening. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thanks for listening to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Please remember to go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week for Elf Santa. You're all building alone? You're all building alone. Come back next week and join us. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.